begins a selection of verses from chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And now these three remain. Faith. Series on the life of Jesus to the world, but to live this good news, to model it for people to see. Uh, Paul was actually called to be an example. Remember that we're dealing in times very different from what we know and understand. For all of the people that Paul would have ministered to, there was no New Testament. There were no scriptures that they could refer to, no kind of definitive teachings that they could just look at and see when they've got a tricky issue, well, how did Jesus handle it? In fact, for, for the vast majority of converts, they had no personal knowledge of Jesus. They had never met him. They, the, Jesus never came within hundreds of miles from where they were. So Paul is really pivotal in this early phase of Christianity. People look at his life. People look at how he lives out this call to be faithful. People look at how he is um, spreading the good news and how the gospel is, is shared in this context of a kingdom that is about love and acceptance. Last week, we left off with Paul and Silas in Philippi. They're on their second missionary journey, and they've gone through all the churches in Galatia, through uh, Lystra and uh, Derby and Iconium, and they have stopped in Philippi where they were beaten and they were jailed. And in the middle of the night, the earthquake happens. Their shackles are broken. They can literally walk out of the jail if they want. But the jailer, um, but they don't. They decide to stay. And uh, the jailer who is about to kill himself because he knows what fate awaits him if he loses the prisoners, is suddenly stopped. And they said, hang on a second, we're all still here. No one has escaped. This leads to this uh, jailer and his family becoming Christians and being baptized, and Paul and Silas go back into the jail. And uh, in, a, in a funny twist of fate, the, um, they tell the authorities that they are in fact Roman citizens. And because they're Roman citizens, they should have had a far more stringent trial with legal representation and everything. And, and when the authorities hear this, they actually have to come to the jail and they beg Paul and Silas to leave the jail so that they uh, don't face any retribution. This uh, led us to look at how Paul at times was called to suffer for his faith, and yet in the midst of that suffering, there isn't uh, the sense of how terrible life is, but he and Silas choose to praise God. In the midst of that jail, having been beaten and humiliated, they sing praises and hymns to God, and they worship Him. 
Now, if it was me, if I was Paul, it would be around about this time that I would probably really want to go home. I mean, think about it for a minute. You've had this long journey. You've been away from home for a long time. You've had a a pretty rough go of it, not the least of which is being stripped naked and humiliated and beaten in front of the whole town. You get thrown into jail. You kind of get this a little bit of vindication by the fact that the authorities are humiliated for what they've done and have to beg you to leave. But, but your wounds are sore and you need time to heal. So, you know, a nice little Mediterranean cruise back home actually sounds just the ticket. It would have been, for me, the ideal way to end off the journey. But not Paul and Silas and, and Timothy who joins them. There's work to be done. And so, as you'll see on the video in a few minutes' time, they head west to the towns of Thessalonica, Athens, and then on to Corinth. Incidentally, I don't know how you imagine Paul in your mind. I always kind of think of Paul as a bit of an old man. But I realize that he actually must have been pretty fit to do the kind of walking that he did and take the trips that he did and suffer the beatings. He must have been uh, a pretty, uh, he must have been in better shape than I am, certainly. In fact, uh, in uh, part of the book that accompanies this movie, Adam Hamilton has done some sums and statistics and calculations, and he said if Paul happened to be wearing a Fitbit, he would have done each day, he would have ended with well over 20,000 steps. To put that in context, on a really good day for me, I may get to 5,000. And that includes, that includes at least three or four trips across to the coffee shop and back again. So that just shows you how, how fit he was. But the reason I mentioned that he goes to Thessalonica and to Athens and then to Corinth is because those letters form a very significant part of our New Testament. The letters to the Thessalonians and the letters to the Corinthians. In fact, there were four letters to the, at least four letters to the Corinthians. We, we, um, we call it one and two, but we actually probably have two and four. We don't have uh, one and three. But a significant portion of our New Testament, a significant portion of our knowledge of what it means to be a Christian, comes out of this second part of their second missionary journey. When Paul went to these towns, he would follow the same pattern that was mentioned in the first video, where he goes and teaches in the synagogue, and before long he gets kicked out, and then he would continue to teach in the temple, uh, sorry, in the open courts and market squares, and his message was always the same. It was always the simple message of Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And God's kingdom is here, not the Roman kingdom that, um, that is ruled by, by fear and by law. But there is a kingdom that is ruled by love. What's interesting was that this very simple message ran foul of teachers in every single place that he went. And uh, Thessalonica was no exception with it being said in Acts chapter 17 that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were accused uh, by a group of, of, the, of the Jewish teachers. They were accused of turning the world upside down. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. I would love to be accused of turning the world upside down because that's exactly what the gospel or the kingdom of God is all about. It's turning the world on its head. When, uh, when we talk of loving others or treating others like we'd like to be treated, 
or kindness and servanthood instead of greed and power, or we speak of mercy and grace instead of condemnation and judgment, or we speak of forgiveness and inclusion instead of that judgment and hate, those are values which should be dominant in Christianity and should be the kind of values that, that if we live them out in our lives, turns the world upside down because they are not the values that the world operates on. The world operates in a very different standard to what the kingdom of God is. And if we truly live out the kingdom of God, it would be wonderful if we were all accused of turning the world upside down. And so it is for Paul and Timothy and Silas that, that the gangs that uh, roughed them up actually started following them to the different places that they went. So their time to, to teach in the courts of the temple, to set up churches, became a little bit more uh, limited or, or a little bit more difficult because of these people who would, would follow them to try and stop them doing what they were supposed to do, what they were called to do. They head off to Athens, and Athens was a pretty big city, as you'll see in a minute. But then when they go to Corinth, Corinth was 10 times the size of Athens. Athens had about 20,000 people. Corinth had 250,000 people. It's this huge city. And uh, what Paul writes about in that city is essential for us in understanding the nature of love and that we're called to live out that love. Adam Hamilton takes us there in the second half of Paul and Silas and Timothy's second missionary journey. Thanks, Mike. What would lead a first century rabbi to travel thousands of miles by sea and by land, to be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately beheaded for his faith? It was a call, a call to turn the world upside down. This is the story of the Apostle Paul, whose writings continue to shape the lives of one-third of the world's population, a man second only to Jesus in his impact and influence on the Christian faith, and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. saw Paul, he was leaving Philippi, having been beaten and abused and imprisoned, and then leaving the prison, he went to the town of Thessalonica. He argued with the Jewish people there and the Gentile God-fearers that Jesus was the Messiah. And there were some Jews who believed and many God-fearing Gentiles. And this created both jealousy and, uh, and a concern that this false teacher was leading people astray. In essence, chased him out of town. He went on to Berea. They sought the scriptures and carefully listened to what he was saying. From there, Paul was led down to the town of Athens, where we are today. And in Athens, we're going to explore Paul's ministry here and some of the things that happened during his time of preaching and uh, speaking and ministering in a community that was largely non-Jewish, Gentile, not even familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And so uh, let's explore a bit of Athens. So Paul arrives in Athens. And the first place he comes is to the synagogue, the synagogue right behind me. These are the ancient, uh, this is the ruins of the ancient synagogue in the Agora, the public square. 
And just above it, you see the temple to Hephaestus. And so you've got uh, temples to all of the gods or many of the gods around here. And in Athens, the public square was known as both the, the birthplace of democracy and the center of philosophy. So, so uh, all around you were people who were coming to debate ideas and to share their philosophical ideas. And so Paul begins discussing the gospel in the market square. And after a time, the philosophers say, we want to hear more of this. And they wanted him to go with them to, uh, to be able to present his ideas at the Areopagus at Mars Hill. Now, if you look around the, the Agora here, you're going to find a large stoa, a large uh, covered portico. There were also shops there. You'll find uh, more centers of government. You'll find, uh, you'll find temples to various gods around. Now, let's go together to the Areopagus, where Paul went and reasoned with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Let's go. So this is the Areopagus, about 450 feet above the rest of the city of Athens. And from here you have a panoramic view of the city. You can see the, the Agora just below the hill, and you can see off into the distance. And when Paul was here, Paul would have seen dozens of temples to various gods from this standing point, from this, from this spot on the uh, Areopagus. Now behind me you see the Acropolis, and there are of course more temples to Poseidon, to uh, Athena the Parthenon, of course, as well as several others. But, uh, but Paul stands up to speak. They say, we want to hear more of these ideas and these gods that you're proclaiming. And as he does this, he looks for a way to connect with them. And he says, I see that in every way you're most religious. In fact, I even saw a temple to an unknown god here in your city. And he says, that which you worship as unknown, I've come to proclaim to you. And then he begins to say these words. Luke records them in the book of Acts, chapter 17, beginning with verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation on the earth, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, Though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now Luke tells us only a few believed in Athens, but you know, it only take, took a few. Paul might have left that day feeling a failure, only a handful of people, two that are named in, in Acts, who put their trust in Christ. But in the centuries ahead, millions upon millions of people in the lands of Greece would put their trust in Jesus Christ. You have no idea when you plant a seed with somebody, the impact that could have, even if it's just one person or two people or a handful of people who have heard of Christ because of you, you have no idea the impact they could have. So Paul left feeling a failure, but in the end, God used him and his witness here to change the world in these lands. After a two-day journey from Athens, Paul arrived here at Corinth. Corinth was the capital city or the, the leading city, the center of government for all of what we would call Greece, Achaia. And, uh, and what you see in the distance is the Gulf of Corinth. And this body of water leads out into the Adriatic Sea. What you see here is the Corinthian Canal. Uh, this is a marvel of engineering. It was conceived in the sixth century before Christ, but wasn't actually built until 1880. It was, construction began, it was finished in 1896. It took 13 years to build this. Now, Prior to the building of the canal, what happened was ships would say it would, would land at the Aegean port. 
they would be pulled off of the water, put onto dollies, and slaves would transport them 3.7 miles with all their goods on them across land uh, on uh, tracks, which you can still see, and, uh, and then would deposit them back into the Gulf of Corinth. And so Corinth became one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. Um, it was also known, however, as a place where the sailors would stay for the day while their ships were being ported over by slaves. And so uh, taverns, brothels, temple prostitutes, all of these were a part of Corinth. And for this reason, Corinth itself became known as a, not only a wealthy city, but also as an immoral city. And, uh, and Paul came here and he spent a year and a half ministering, starting in the synagogue, preaching the good news there, and then eventually into the marketplaces, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we know that he wrote several letters here to Corinth, probably at least four uh, to the people of Corinth. The, the letters demonstrate that there was a concern among the people for um, sexual immorality, uh, questions about the, the meat market and what's appropriate to eat and not to eat. There were major divisions in the church. There was conflict in the church. And so Paul addresses that conflict. And I want us to explore together these ruins of the ancient city of Corinth. Let's go. I'm walking on the streets of ancient Corinth right now, streets that Paul undoubtedly would have walked on. And I want to share with you a couple of things from here. First of all, in the background you see Acrocorinth. This Acropolis was much larger than the Acropolis at Athens, and much taller too. This Acropolis is nearly 2,000 feet high. And uh, at the top was the great temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. She was also the goddess Venus in, in Rome. And so the goddess of love, she had at her temple, it said, temple prostitutes who were at her service. And they offered their services to those who came and visited, as well as those who lived in the town of Corinth. And for a donation that was made to the goddess, they offered themselves. Now, as we come down these roads, I want to remind you, Paul came for a year and a half. He, he spent time first in the synagogue, ministering with the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers, and uh, led some of them to faith in Christ. Once more, was expelled from the synagogue. He ends up in the public square, and there he's preaching and teaching. And he does this daily for a year and a half. And during that period of time, he has a profound impact on the city. One of the most amazing buildings in the archaeological site of ancient Corinth is the 5th century BC Temple to Apollo. It towered over everything else in the city. It was a magnificent temple. Paul could not have missed this. He would have walked past it many times. He would have seen it every day as he was walking through the city. The sacrifices that were offered there, the animals that were sacrificed there, would have been slaughtered and their meat sold in the marketplace. This is something Paul addresses in one of his epistles to the Corinthians. So this was the Marble Street, one of the Marble Streets of Corinth. And uh, back behind me, the shops. And uh, up above these shops was the Temple to Apollo. And that left the meat market in a pretty close proximity to that. So the meat market was actually across the street, the rest of the market here. And, uh, and the food that was sacrificed to idols, the animals that were sacrificed to idols were butchered and sold in the meat market. And this is all part of what you read in, in uh, Paul's letters to the Corinthians was questions about meat that was sacrificed to idols. So this is a part of the, uh, of the commercial area of the, um, of the city of Corinth. So now I want to take you to the Acropolis, the Acrocorinth where in Paul's day, the temple to Aphrodite stood. 
So we're on the last leg of the road going up to the Acre Corinth. And in the background, you can see the Gulf of Corinth and again, the Acre Corinth above us. Let's take a look. So this is as high up as we're able to go today. And you can see we've still got several hundred more feet before we finally reach the top of the Acropolis. What you can see from here, however, are the ruins of the ancient castles that were built over centuries. Beyond the top of the Acropolis that you can see here is the foundations of the Temple to Aphrodite. And then you can see the gate that we could see down from the city as we looked up, you can see the gate. And that gate then opened up and there was a road that zigzagged across this valley and made its way on down into the town. And uh, you can still see the remnants of that road, the stones that are uh, going across where the road had been paved all the way down into Corinth. In the church at Corinth, the believers were, were uh, in conflict with one another. They had different parties or factions. And uh, some were with Apollos, and said, some said they were followers of Peter, and some Paul. And, and Paul was calling them to lay aside those things that led to conflict, the pride and the arrogance and the, and the disputations over things that ultimately didn't matter. And he reminded them that the primary characteristic of the Christian life was love. Now, many of you are gonna be watching this video during an election year. Every two years in the United States, we go through this picking at the scab that divides our country, the, the wounds in our country. And, and we're divided, Republican and Democrat, we're divided over, over issues in so many ways. And during that time, we forget that we're bound together by Jesus Christ, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we allow this to tear us apart. And we as Christians ought to be that bridge that brings people together, that reminds people by our actions, that demonstrates to people how you live with your differences and yet still love. I want to invite you to do that in your church and in your community. And so I want to end by reminding you at this place where the goddess of love was, was uh, worshipped, how Paul defined love and how he challenged us to love. And this is what he said in that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Listen to these words. He said, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he describes what that love looks like. And he says this, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This kind of love never fails. And then he ends the chapter in this way. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The letters that Paul writes to the Corinthian church give us such tremendous insight and understanding of early Christianity and reveals those issues that Adam mentioned that they were facing. 
Last week we looked at the fact that the churches in Galatia and Philippi, they were struggling through this whole issue of circumcision. And the churches in Corinth, they faced this wildly promiscuous and pervasive society and, and they had other issues of how the Spirit works and some people claiming that they were better Christians than others because they had more gifts or because they followed Apollos or instead of Paul or there was liberalism and conservatism and the sexual ethics and rules that he spoke of and the meat issue and, and, uh, and each of these things was so divisive and damaging to an early, uh, an early church busy forming, trying to, trying to show and usher in a new way of living in the kingdom. And uh, that division which was so damaging is why Paul uh, writes so strongly about what love is and how we can define love. Adam mentions the election year in the United States. This was filmed in 2016, which was the year that uh, saw Donald Trump take the office of the presidency uh, in the United States. Now, I don't often preach on political issues, but uh, I'll say this in regards to that election. The fact that Russia meddled in the election to the advantage of Trump has now been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. It definitely happened. Russia wanted Trump to be president. What's not proven or what isn't really known is, is why, what was the motive that they wanted that. And many analysts have speculated, could they have wanted to manipulate him? Maybe did they have blackmail material that they could use as leverage, possibly? Did they uh, think that he'd be more sympathetic to their agenda? All of those are possibilities, but <clears throat> I actually agree with one political commentator who, who wrote saying, it was nothing as lofty as that. Nothing as clever, nothing as, as wonderful. The reason that Russia wanted Trump to be president was purely to weaken America by turning Americans against each other, by causing them to fight amongst one another. And this commentator's theory was that of the two candidates, Trump would be the one who would be the most divisive. Trump would be the one who would cause the most angst and cause the most uh, factions to come in. Now, you're welcome to agree or disagree with that, with that commentator, but it taps into an old principle which is so well known, divide and conquer. That's it. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And, and uh, it would be, you know, it's... Um, I, th I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that if even from 2016 to where they are now, the infighting within America has gotten a lot worse than what it was. And as Adam Hamilton says, Paul sees the potential of that divisiveness. He sees the potential of the, the divisiveness coming into a church and damaging what, what is trying to be portrayed as a new kind of kingdom, a new way of living a new way to witness of how we're supposed to treat each other and, and love each other and be kind to each other. And so he writes those words, if you speak in the tongues of men and angels, if you have gifts that are, that are just absolutely phenomenal, but you do not love, you are nothing. If you're generous and you give everything away and hand over your body to feel good about what you've done, but you don't have love, you receive no benefit whatsoever. It's love that defines us. It's love that binds us. It's love that holds us. It's love that governs us, says Paul. And if you want to know what that looks like, 
Well, here's the definition. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't rude. It isn't seeking its own good. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It isn't happy with injustice, but rejoices in the truth. And the one thing that every one of those factors holds in common is that love is a choice. Each of those things is a choice. Love is patient. You choose to be patient. Love is kind. You choose to be kind. Love isn't rude. You choose to, to speak kindly to others. Love doesn't seek its own good, but seeks the good of others. And so often we live in a society that we kind of think to ourselves, love is a feeling. But love isn't. It's a choice. We choose to love. The um, marriage is a wonderful example of this. The feelings of love aren't always there. They go up and down. But our love isn't based on what you feel. Your love is based on the fact that you have chosen to love. And from the choice, the feelings come, not the other way around. If love was only ever based on how we feel, we would be in deep trouble. And yet that's what society moves towards. If I don't feel like being kind, well, I don't have to be kind. It's all about me. If I don't feel like uh, being fair, I don't have to be fair because it's all about me. And Paul says, no, no, no. To choose to love is to choose to turn the world upside down. It's to choose to live in a different way. And that message is challenging in, in epic proportions. But the point of it is that wherever we are and whatever we do, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're talking to family members, whether we're interacting with friends, whether we're dealing with the cashier at Coles or at, at Woolies or having a discussion about things we believe about God or interacting with our spouse or dealing with our kids or having a, a rough time at work or even just driving on the roads. Imagine if love governed all of those interactions. Imagine if we choose to love in every single situation. There's a, there's a fantastic story, a really lovely story, which... Um, Happened a couple of, well, a lot, a lot of years ago now. But um, I was just ending my teenage years, going into, into my 20s, and um, journeying through this call to ministry. And, and in our church at the time, there was a, there was a young man who was, was starting his road to ordained ministry. And in the Methodist church in South Africa, what you, uh, what you have to do is anyone who wants to become an ordained minister has to become a lay preacher first. And to become a lay preacher, you have to have what's known as trial services. Do they have them here? I don't even know. They do. Trial services. That's great. They are the most hideous things that a preacher could ever hope to have to do. Because you stand there with your notes all prepared, and there are three ordained ministers sitting in the congregation with a clipboard and a pen. And they write all the time. And every time they go to start writing, you think, have I said something wrong? Did I say something right? Is it a good thing they're writing down? Is it a bad thing that they're writing down? And this young man, this is going to be recorded on the internet, so let's just give him a different name, shall we? Let's call him, uh, let's call him Nigel. So, so Nigel, is, um, Nigel is doing the service, and he's preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. He's got some lovely illustrations. He's worked very hard on all his notes. 
the three ordained ministers are sitting there critting his uh, service as he's going along, and uh, he preaches from 1 Corinthians 13. And at the end of it, he throws out this challenge, which is a really good challenge. And he says, if you want to know if you're really living out this passage, then you should substitute your name for the word love right throughout 1 Corinthians 13. So wherever you read the word love in the passage, insert your name there. And then he demonstrated it, and he said, so for me it would be Nigel is patient, Nigel is kind, Nigel is not rude, Nigel is not self-seeking. You, you get the point? And he kind of led, sort of gave this example of himself. And that was good. That was a great challenge. But then he, he made this sort of fatal mistake, and he said, now we're going to read it together, and I want you to do the same thing. At which point, a lady sitting near the front row hadn't quite got the concept, and so she started at the top of her voice, Nigel is patient, Nigel is kind, Nigel isn't rude. And, you know, she was so, she was so full of, of conviction when she said it that you could see the rest of the congregation were wondering if they had got it wrong. So they kind of joined in with her. And uh, the whole congregation, this poor guy who was doing this lovely trial service, now had an entire congregation citing his praises, saying, Nigel is patient, Nigel is kind, Nigel isn't rude. And you could just see the, the blood was draining from his face as he watched these three ordained ministers writing down their notes of this young lay preacher who got a congregation to sing how wonderful he was. They got through almost the whole passage before he managed to stop them. And, uh, and uh, the rest of the congregation, uh, well, certainly the people around me, we were in hysterics. Uh, poor old... Poor old Nigel was, was absolutely devastated at this fact that his service had got hijacked. But, um, but I, I, it makes me smile whenever I think about it. But I do think the challenge is real. And I do think the exercise is a good one. To say, to turn this world upside down, to be called to love. Could you put your name into that passage? Could you do it? Could you say that you are kind and patient and not jealous and, and not arrogant or rude and don't seek your own good. In every situation, does your name fit in there? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Paul and for what he teaches us about being called to love. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear a challenge to us tonight, that, that we would be able to insert our names in that place. And so even as you sit there, just in the quietness of your own mind, let it be a challenge to you. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't arrogant. Love isn't rude. Love doesn't seek its own good. Love isn't irritable. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love isn't happy where there is injustice. Love is happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things. Love will trust in all things. Love will hope for the best in all things. And love will endure all things. And Lord God, may we take that challenge and 
And may it be part of how we live out our lives this week and every week, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.